from the liberal northeast comes a lone voice of truth honest commentary in dishonest times think deeper with juan newsome this is the cure radio program This is The Cure. Okay, folks, thank you. Thank you for uh, tuning in for another episode of The Cure. And I have my guest, John Henderson. Uh, We're going to talk about Russia and and the Ukraine today. So, John, I know you've been checking out what's been going on (laughs) with the Ukraine. This has, like, been a slow buildup. you know, ever since um, foreign policy missteps back since um, the 1990s, um, right. when you really trace it back, um, it all starts with the um, the Ukraine nuke treaty. Uh, I think they called it the uh, I forgot the name of the treaty. To be totally honest, uh, but I know it was in 1994, and that's where. Um, the U.S. kind of gave its assurances that they would protect the Ukraine and Russia um, was supposed to never attack uh, the Budapest Memorandum. That's oh yeah okay yeah I, I, yeah. I was I was googling it right now just to make sure we had the right name. Yeah, the Budapest Memorandum. I, I just it just came to me. Um, so yeah, I just kind of kind of let's start there. Um, the Ukraine gave up their nukes. Uh, and then slowly by surely, um, Putin um, encroached on their sovereignty and their rights, trying to install puppet regimes um, over time. Uh, right. He did it three or four times, t- attempted to to do it three or four times to install puppet regimes that would kind of build, bend to the uh, will of um, the Kremlin. Right. Um, then you have Obama comes in. Well, let's let, let's start with some history that goes beyond that, right? So the one thing we have to remember about Ukraine historically, in the USSR days, uh, the Ukrainian economy, its farmland, agriculture, and the seaports on the Black Sea, um, its farmland produced 70% at one point of all of Russia's, the USSR's, agricultural production, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. That's why it was known as the breadbasket of the USSR. So when you look at what they're trying to regain and rebuild, um, Putin is seeing this from an old KGB Kremlin standpoint, where he wants mm-hmm. to maintain at least some kind of autonomy over former Russian areas to include ensuring that there is food, there is sea access, there are uh, enough resources mm-hmm. to to make the country uh, defensible. And if they subsume what was the breadbasket back in the day, they can offset their shortfalls and provide kind of a... Um, a buffer zone between the EU, which is always growing, all the NATO countries. If you've seen that map with all the NATO installations around Russia and everything else, yeah, they're con- they're continually encroaching on Russian space. Russia wants to, you know, at one point Putin did request to be part of Russia, and when they said that he would have to go through the process like everybody else, he kind of scoffed at that and said, "I'm not going to do that." Right. Mm-hmm. So at the end of the day, uh, Putin is kind of doing his own thing, standing in his own on his own country's behalf because of his historic ties as part of the KGB. 
And then with the resource replenishment and potential for the Ukraine area and the seaport access, those are critical for that nation's survival so they're not landlocked. Um, and so that, that is the whole push behind this from a political and strategic standpoint. He's seizing Ukraine to subsume it as part of Russia. Now, fast forward to the, the what was it called? The Treaty of what? Um, the Budapest, Budapest, memorandum. Budapest memorandum. memorandum. So what that did was that assured that the Ukrainians, um, if they signed that memorandum, would not be attacked by Russia. So going forth from 1994, that was the expectation. If they gave up their nukes, they would be kind of a, you know, neutral, weapons, zone. You know, neutral zone. They would not be part of that push. When that when the apple cart began to get, get uh, upset was when they began to push for entry into the EU, right? Mm-hmm. So once Putin sees them disappearing as an ally and as someone that he actually is opposed to from a global standpoint, he wants no part of any, whether you call it the New World Order or the European Union or whatever else there. They have a lot of socialism and other problems that go on as an ideology that contain their countries. If you remember under the Obama years, we looked at Greece and its complete and utter failure and whether they yep. kept that in, in the EU, right? Yeah. And they, they were wondering, should we bail these people out, right? Because they were, what, $11 billion in debt at some point? Yeah. I think yeah, that, that was it. It, 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 was, it was not a big number compared to our stuff, but according to their GDP and everything else that they were focusing on, um, it, it was problematic. So that's why uh, Putin sees the Ukraine going to eat to the EU as a political and strategic liability, not only for the resources, but also because of the proximity of people who don't like Russia and aren't friendly to Russia. Right. Yeah. 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 Putin. um, Yeah. And I remember I did a lot of research on Putin back um, when he um, first ascended um, you know, into the top position and, um, you know, knowing that when the fall of, of Russia, the Soviet Union really happened, he was in the bowels of the KGB, right? He was in the bowels of the KGB. He was the deputy mayor of St. Petersburg. And that kind of collapse, I think he's still like in a, in a time warp um, and he's stuck there. Well, imagine out of there. Imagine if uh, the United States separated and became fifty individual separate nation states, right? Yep. And we want to keep Florida because it's a place where everybody wants to retire, right? Yeah. And, and it's got all kinds of natural resources there. Cape Canaveral's there. It's got you know a whole bunch of different things that we value as a nation. Uh, you can throw Disneyland or World, whatever one is there on that ticket as well. Imagine then the people um, up in D.C. that say, oh, crap, we want to hold on to Florida for posterity's sake and because we like to vacation there. Right. Yeah, exactly. So, so that there is some some value in maintaining those traditions, even though the USSR is no longer together at some point, that historical relevance and the 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 ties between the, those nations and the peoples within it is more important than just artificial boundaries, right? Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. we saw the same thing in Iraq and Syria, where we had Iraqi people and Syrian people crossing the border all the time because they had family on the other side of the border. To, yeah. them, it wasn't, to them, it wasn't a big deal. They'd done that for centuries, 
as soon as the United States occupied it and said, these are your borders, thou shalt not cross. <laughs> now we yeah. got all kinds of people herding sheep and moving, you know, everything from weapons and cash to just food and benzene back and forth across the border to their, to their neighbors and their family. That's right. So, so th- th- there's, there's a part where nation building and having nation states is actually counterproductive to a better human society. And at the same time, you have to look at it realistically and say a nation must be sovereign and protect its borders. And when that nation is threatened by forces that in their ideological push to change the way the world is, which is the EU, um, they become a threat to those former nation states uh, in a way that is not readily seen by those who want to fly the we are the world flags and are champions of socialism and what have you, right? So that, that's, that's the issue. You, got, um, you have a bunch of East Germans that fled from um, Eastern Germany. Um, I guess they have managed to institute a neo-Nazi um, portion in Western Ukraine, right? Yeah. Yeah. That's problematic. Putin made mention of that. Everybody kind of glossed over that. I made mention of it, but only to observe the fact that there's not that much difference between a national socialist and a communist, right? Yeah. It's, all fa- it's all fascism once you apply the rule, the authority to it, right? So th- those are the kind of things that we, we need to look at and figure out why Putin is doing what he's doing. But he lost me because I, I provided some information back in 2014 when he was doing his Crimea push, right? Mm-hmm. Um, for, for the DOD, I did some analysis and some other stuff on that. And I actually supported his push into Crimea, right? Because it made sense. It ma- made sure that he had seaport access, that it was a retaking of old land that pe- is so far up into that eastern part of the Black Sea that it's not really going to be missed that much, right? And it left most of Ukraine intact, right? Yeah. And then you had Donetsk and what there's another city over there that they started having conflicts in on a regular basis. And I said, this could spiral out of control. Well, those are the places that the fighting started this time. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, then, then as they moved westward and then now they're trying to push into Kiev and then take Odessa, which would give them full seaport run across the entire Southern portion of Ukraine on the black sea. Right. Yeah. So, so that's what we're looking at geographically. Putin has said, I'm just taking the whole thing and it, it is what it is. Once he launched the strike on the nuclear facility, right, whether that was intentional or just a misfire, whatever the case may be. Mm-hmm. Um, and then once he started uh, opening up avenues for people to supposedly flee and then mining those paths and uh, assaulting them with uh, artillery. Yeah, he committed war crimes. So there's no there's no clean way out of this now for Putin except jail or death. He hit that hospital today, too. They hit a hospital today. Yeah. Uh, and there were 17, 17 or so um, children that got injured in the hospital. Right. Um, I mean, I think he's gone like beyond the pale. Of course, the media is like cycling it over and over and over and over again. And um, and they're, um, you know, they're just, you know, they're just coming with the same talking points. Uh, do you think the Ukraine can pull this thing off? I mean, you have a lot of foreign fighters coming in there from Poland, from the UK, right. um, and from other places to fight. Um, you know, it looks like they have a, a, a good combination of, you know, the professional military and the civilian force that they have there. Right. Do you think they can pull it off? So 
back in 2014, when they were doing the assaults, there were actually militias that were part of uh, holding uh, both uh, Kiev and mm-hmm. also there were also militias that were fighting against those militias, right? So they had a disparate uh, course of who was going to take power. Mm-hmm. Now that the now that the Russians have made a, a basically they've unified those all those different forces, so they actually have Ukrainian forces on all sides of their political party looking to counter Russian forces. In every insurgency, the insurgents really have the advantage if it's their home territory, right? Yeah. Yeah, we saw that in Afghanistan with the Russians in the '80s with Charlie Wilson's war. We saw that in Iraq and Afghanistan with our own issues over the last 20 years. It's going to be the same thing. Yeah, now we've got I think 1.9 million people I saw leave today. Uh, that's that's right. the total that, that have fled from the Ukraine into Poland currently. There's going to be more that leave as well, right? But the people that stay behind are the ones that have something to lose, and they're going to fight for their country. And because yeah. they they are the People that have the most to lose are going to be the most motivated to stay. You got the Russians marching in 40 mile convoys down main roads. Okay. If you actually, if you actually armed those insurgents with rockets, mines, and other things that would actually take out those convoys and gave them air support, you could actually wipe out probably 40% of the Russian forces on first 48 hours. Wow. Just Just because their tactical advantage is horrible. They don't know what they're doing. I kind of figure that. And also it's, kind of a shame that they're not getting, you know, the air support that they need. Um, you know, they're, um, I know um, Zelensky has called, you know, time and time again for no fly zone, but even, even he, he would settle for just getting a mix from Poland. Um, right. And, and that's become, they've turned that into a logistical problem. Right. Um, between DC and the Polish government, you know, how they're going to acquire them. And, you know, it's just, they're just really getting the runaround when this thing could be. Uh, we've had, uh, I'm not going to say the exact number. We've had troops in Poland for a very long time, right? We actually trained and brought over and worked with Polish forces in Iraq, right? So mm-hmm. we've had U.S. forces as part of our NATO position over there for a long time. If Poland does launch, Russia knows that there's U.S. backing should they ever try to attack actual Polish territory or soldiers that are on their side of the border, right? Yeah. So they actually, they actually have a very strong standoff presence. If they go in with air support or whatever else, then you have a whole nother, you know, another game at play. But you got to look at it from a strategic standpoint. What's the benefit if you're, if you're not going to take out those military targets immediately so that there's no viable response? They would have to respond from Moscow, and that becomes a political advantage only, right? So yeah. what, I mean, what I mean by that is Putin has extended himself already into the entire Ukrainian sector, okay? If he continues to road march like he does, which is horrible, he's going to lose anyway. But even if the Russian forces take over and begin to occupy territory, if you can harass them and keep them contained in those different pockets and make them focus on a small insurgency, you can have them fighting against each other at some point to where they won't maintain that territory for the long term without some form of uh, acquiescence and over overhaul from the Ukrainian government on down. So unless Zelensky ever surrenders, they're in for a long fight based on just the fact that they own the home territory and that advantage and they have the backing of people like the U.S., all the NATO allies and everybody else who sees Putin as the devil at this point. They're going to keep arming them and also providing air support along borders and continue to encroach upon that no-fly zone. The closer then they get to the capital of Kiev, um, they will actually have a different kind of advantage where they can 
pretty much it's like shooting fish in a barrel at that point because once you have all of those pieces in place and your forces on the ground are taking away your uh, anti-aircraft batteries and all that stuff, you can basically take out the Russian forces with ease just using coordinated movement between the ground troops and the foreign powers that have the air power. Wow. So, so you, you in, in a full-scale assault on the Ukraine, if NATO wanted to pull those pieces together and actually take Russian troops to bear for the uh, the actions of Putin and his orders, it would, I, I, if we did it right, and again, you know my thoughts on doing it right since we failed to win every war since World War II, if we did it right, we could actually end that entire conflict in two weeks. Yeah. Yeah, man, I really figure I, <laughs> I, um, I'm reluctant to say let's do it because of who's in charge. Yeah, but remember, our military is 20 years deep in the global war on terrorism now. With all the experience, the firepower, the knowledge of medical combat survival and everything else, we're more prepared for that conflict than anybody else in that spectrum, right? Mm -hmm, Now, I'm not mm -hmm. saying we should send U.S. troops. I am saying that sending advisors over, right, sending folks like me over, if you want to put it that way, right, that actually understand the end game and can actually uh, operate on both an insurgent and asymmetric level and traditional combat role. If you have people that can advise and, and coordinate and bring those troops together, you don't have to involve American forces at all. You can bring in Polish folks and uh, Hungarian forces. Um, the Belar- Belarusians are on the side of Russia, but you have uh-huh. jo- you have Georgia, you have um, what's the other one? There's Romania over there. Um, yeah. There, there's there's other there's the Uzbekistan, Kazakhstan. Yeah. Right. They they haven't had a traditional military presence. Imagine us plussing them up as a regional power. Right. Wow. That, yeah. that would be crazy. And and they have more than enough people that are willing to fight Russia just because of old history. Right. Yeah, that's very true. <laughs> so, wow. I mean, uh, what, what Putin did was he actually opened a can of worms. He doesn't understand how to put the lid back on. And he did it in such a way that there's no way to put it back on without his blood being demanded as the final payment for closing that bill. Yeah, that's very true. And it's and it's funny because. You know, I talk to a lot of Russians here. There are a lot of Russians here in the Northeast. And every time they get to talking about that, that government, they do not like the government there. Um, they do not like Putin. Um, they do not like the government there. They have like a disdain for like the Kremlin and what's being done um, right. in their home country. And so I, I would imagine it, it could be a situation similar to a Boris Yeltsin, where he would have to kind of step down um, and hand the country over. Um, I, I don't know if I see him being overthrown, but it would be similar to Yeltsin, where he had to hand over the country. Right. So, and to overthrow Putin, it's going to take his interior cabinet and the people that are around him being that guy that says, hey, Mm, th- this ends today, right? We're not going to sacrifice Russian troops on this entire platform for something that has clearly been mismanaged and botched from the beginning. And then something that there's no way to actually, um, h- how do you bring this to an effective resolution given the actions that have already gone on? Mm-hmm. Right? What's the, what's the resolution? How is it even possible to resolve any of that based on the fact that you're you're killing women and children in, in villages? You're attacking a nuclear power station that affects multiple countries, right? Yeah, yeah. You know, I mean, the, the things that he's done as, a, as an error 
are more egregious than any gain that can be happen from a peaceful resolution at some point. So he's going to be turned over by his own people or someone else is going to have to go in there and say, Hey, your day is done, sir. You're, you're out. Wow. Wow. That's crazy. It's, it's crazy because when the Soviet Union fell the first time, it seemed like we were kind of asleep behind the wheel. Right. And where, where Department of State should have went in there and helped them establish, you know, like a democracy. Um, but it, it kind of, you know, Yeltsin was in trouble and he kind of dug Putin up out of the trenches of the KGB right. and he was allowed to ascend to power. And just kind of the same old thing, you know, just kind of the same old type of, you know, you know, communist leadership got to take their keep their positions of power um, and the oligarchs and and all of those guys. Um, I'm wondering if, you know, if this time around, could it be something different? Because people in Putin's generation, when you hear some of the people from Russia, especially some of the well-known people, I forget. I forget the journalist, uh, the Russian journalist. He was doing a um, investigation on the whole Chernobyl incident, and mm. he said when Putin first came to power, they they you know they thought that he was a man of their generation. Right. That he thought that you know that he would usher in a new era. Um, you know that their country would be leaning you know towards more towards democracy. Right. And only to come to find out that it was just the same old, same old. Yeah. So, and we're not going to, we're not going to change the old, old horses. You know, it is what it is. If you put uh McCarthy era Republican up on the station, they're going to say the exact same thing, you know? <laughs> and, and, and honestly, for the most part, they're not wrong. Right. That's the hard part people have to come to terms with is that out of all the things that Putin is doing, his intentions going in were not necessarily wrong. Right. But the problem is his actions afterwards. And we all know that uh, good intentions do not weigh, outweigh bad outcomes. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. And that's what's happened. Bad outcomes have happened. And you got people fleeing a country that they love that was part of their family at one point. Their and home. if you got. Yeah, if you got people fleeing like that and you know that they're they're facing atrocities and war crimes and everything else, you got to put a stop to that no matter what. So that, yeah. that's, un- that's unacceptable unless they have actually posed a threat, which they pose a threat to nobody. Yeah, yeah. Now, do you think NATO is going to pony up and, and um, try to put it into this? or <laughs> Based on their history, my money's on no. I mean, uh, NATO is a very non-committal organization that worries more about commerce and doing business than actually fighting and doing the right thing. Yeah. So I, I, I'm I'm no fan of NATO. I'm not a fan of the EU by any stretch of the imagination. Um, mm-hmm. I think those are bureaucratic bodies that are the same. They're of the same ilk as the ones that are trying to do climate change by extrapolating money from everybody else and saying, oh, look, we're, we're solving for climate change and they don't do anything except taking more money. That's right. right. So NATO, uh, the North American Trade Organizations, uh, that alliance, yeah, it, that, that's an alliance that builds business partnerships and uh, affects trade around the globe. It's a good thing in concept when it starts being asked to manage wars instead of do business. It crosses those lines where you're like, mm, can we count on them? No. Can we count on them as war financiers? Maybe, right? Um, they, they honestly don't have the 
there are no NATO troops, right? That there are there's a coalition of people that are part of NATO that manage to pony up troops, but NATO itself does not own troops. It can command nothing. Okay. Yeah. It's sure. an alliance, right? Just like the UN has no real troops. It's it's a they're an alliance and they command other things with the participation of other countries. And if they decide to uh, enter into some kind of a conflict, it's the countries that are participating that pony up the resources, not that organization. That's true. So yeah. so it's just a bureaucratic body. So when people get spun around the axle about, well, are we going to support NATO? Well, NATO isn't going to do anything except sit on the sidelines and watch anyway. Now, they may pony up some dollars out of their, their coffers, but they're not doing anything to actually solve or start or stop the war effort. They don't mm-hmm. have the power to do that. I have a feeling that things would be a little bit different if Trump was in office. Um, <laughs> yeah. Well, even, I mean, you, you saw that Putin took no actions while Trump was in office. Now, whatever yeah. the motivations for that may be, and I'll, I'll be honest with you, because of the whole Russian collusion crap that he was being impeached for that was never proven and it was actually, you know, it was Biden and his crew that were actually the ones diddling in the Ukrainian stuff. When you look at that history and that understanding, not having those ties with Russia to have perhaps staved off this current disaster is probably one of the downfalls of the Trump administration, not intentionally, but how do you reach across the aisle to work with somebody that everyone already thinks you're colluding with and is falsely accusing you of doing, and now you got to turn around and make friends with that guy or at least negotiate so that there is some form of peace initiative or some kind of a standardization of rules that they follow on that level, right? Yeah. Because once, once the START Treaty was implemented by Obama in 20, 2011, 2012, they started withdrawing all those missiles out of those NATO countries and allies, right? So, yeah. uh, And that included the radar. That included all the things that would report, detect, observe, and respond to uh, Russian um, missiles to include nuclear and chemical capabilities, yep. right? They put a freeze so, on Poland missile defense under a START that, treaty. That's right. And so our, par- our part in that was supposed to be 1,500 missiles that we withdrew from all of those countries and, d- you know, made go away under the Obama administration. So when Trump was in office, he was dealing with the aftermath of that and hoping that nothing would fall apart on his watch while he's being accused of Russian collusion, even though he had no parts in that. And if yeah. Russia had acted during that time, our only standoff, honestly, was the guy going out with some tweets and saying, hey, Putin, better back down, buddy. Right. Because how else do you counter that if, if you're totally unprepared and you've already reduced all of your response systems to almost nothing in the countries that would be most directly impacted? Right. Yeah. So honestly, Putin's invasion of the Ukraine is Putin's invasion of Ukraine. If he actually encroaches into other NATO countries, that's on Obama because Obama withdrew all of those resources to actually make those countries defensible against that kind of an attack. Yeah, yeah. And Europe is kind of left out there as far as missile defenses. I know um, under Trump, Poland got pieces of their missile defenses back. Right. Well, that's because um, we maintained we maintained presence in their country right yeah any any country that we maintained a presence in was was poland germany um uh there's there's a couple of other ones over there but those are the countries that we at least tried to remedy that start bungling uh, the Uh start treaty bungling and try to say okay if we can't do this we've at least got these options for you right so what about our own missile defenses are you are you confident in 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 the capabilities of um, i am I'm not confident in necessarily the people that are managing the missile defense systems for us, but at the same time, I'm also more confident in our geographic location. Okay. Yeah. Nobody cares to cross the ocean 
to come and mess with America, right? Yeah. Our, our biggest strength and saving grace right now is that none of these problems are in our backyard. If they were, they would be coming for us hot and heavy, right? It, it would be an endless pursuit um, because we have the resources, the technology, um, the connections. We, we have the we have everything set up as a system, right? We're looking at now a world system where people are coming to be parasites. They're crossing our border to come here for a free ride, not to conquer new lands or take over and build a, a, a pioneer settling uh, or setting like we did with our early settlers, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, Those mm-hmm. people actually were trying to build a country. The people mm-hmm. that are coming here now are trying to take advantage of the country that's already been built. Yeah. Right. Yeah. yeah. So when you look at that from a, a European standpoint, the countries that have already been built are part of NATO or they're part of Russia, right? Russia was built on the backs of communist totalitarianism, right? Yep. And when they broke those people and made them work and put them into gulags and made sure that they suffered to, in order to keep all of those goods and services and products flowing, they oppressed so many people and built an economy around that, that once that fell apart and the Soviet bloc was, dis, uh, you know, disconnected in 1991 once you take all that apart now the russians have to fend for themselves and their imports and exports are are what do the do the work for them economically so if they're only importing and exporting uh fuel caviar vodka what are the other exports they don't sell any cars they have um in in the mountains of siberia they have Mm -hmm. um precious metals okay um you know they have plate they have platinum um gold um, copper, silver, right? Um, stuff like, but it's a limited market. I mean, it's very limited. How many people right. are going to, how many people are going to survive off of oil, vodka, right? Right. And then the precious metal, only the precious metal producers are going to get that money. Well, only the people that control the producers, right? That's yeah. the whole downfall of communism is that once you have all those people in charge, the ones in charge get because they're in charge of redistribution of resources, they get to keep all the best for themselves and everybody else that works for them gets put out in the cold. They give them black bread and have them stand in lines uh, for food, for medical supplies, for everything else. They make the rest of the country their slaves while they sit around and reap the benefits, right? So -hmm. when you have those kind of folks, they call them the oligarchs, right? All the people that have Mm -hmm. the yachts and the money coming in from the Russian people that are supplying those resources, they're making their money, but they're already taken care of. When you got everybody else out there starving, at some point, your country is right for overthrow from the inside out. Yeah. Yeah. Right? I would say if it wasn't for, I would say if it wasn't for, if they didn't have such a powerful propaganda machine in place in Russia, right. I would say, and I would almost say even now, even with the powerful propaganda machine, it's kind of right for overthrow because you see all of the people that are going to jail for protesting. Correct. Um, the war. So I would even say that it's almost right for overthrow. Right. Yeah. So, yeah. And now compl- complicate that and compound it with the fact that if you deploy a whole bunch of Russian forces into the Ukraine to maintain stability for the long haul in a prolonged battle there, mm-hmm. how does that how does that weaken your defense forces in Russia actual to keep those people that are under the thumb of communism from overthrowing the government? Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, I could only dream. Goodness. So, well, an insurgency in Ukraine could definitely spark an insurgency in Russia, right? Yeah. So from that strategic standpoint, Putin has overplayed his hand, right, in a major way. And there's not really a whole lot of 
ways to get that back, honestly. Yeah. His military has definitely underperformed, you know, because I thought well, when they attacked, I thought, man, you know, this is really bad. I thought the Ukraine was going to fall in like a couple of days. I'm going to be totally honest. I thought that the whole country would just fold up because they took Crimea Mm -hmm. uh, within a blink of an eye. I mean, Crimea Crimea took nine months. Yeah, they did. But they they walked in there. They walked in there and they and they kind of took it away from them just the way that they took it. Right. Um, I thought the country was going to fall. I thought the capital was going to fall in three days. I thought they would have Zelensky and they would kill him. But, right. you know, the <laughs> the resistance is fighting back, man. This is like their 1776 moment. Well, but I remember a lot of those Ukrainian folks that were down there, they have Ukrainian forces. They have soldiers that were under the USSR. That leadership is still around and available, right, for guidance. Yeah. And they've, they've had a steady soldier presence. I think, what is their number? It's like 265,000? Yeah, about 265,000 soldiers. Yeah. yeah. So that, that's, I mean, that, that, that's a significant number that you got fighting against Russian troops and all of those Ukrainian forces. Those, those are homegrown uh, folks, they know where to fight. They know where to hide. They know where to get the resources. The Russians don't, right? Yeah. So, so you can run an insurgency with actual soldiers as well, and make it even that much more effective with their tactical knowledge. Yeah, and it, it seems like you know, and uh, I hate to be cynical about this, but Biden, um, you know, he wouldn't. And I'm going to be. This is just my thoughts. These are just my thoughts, Biden. He wouldn't be in a rush to help Zelensky out anyway. I mean, just the whole. Only if Zelensky promised to hide all the paperwork and the collusion crap that was actually going on between the Biden family and the Clintons. You're reading my mind. (laughs) (laughs) That's the only way Biden gets involved, right? You're reading my mind. If I can cover for my crackhead son, I'm all in. But until I can do that, I'm going to sit back and watch. I'm going to sit on my hands and watch my feet. I'm going to play NATO, right? Yeah. Oh, man. That's and that's what nobody's saying on on the news. They're not saying that because all of that has not been really proven or the people that have proven it have already soiled their reputation by bringing so many false accusations forward that they don't have credibility. Right. Yeah. So the reality is, is that somewhere there was a prosecutor that was fired over there. Trump asked about that prosecutor and that prosecutor was tied to dealings of oil and other resources between the uh uh, Ukraine and the United States and Hunter Biden was somehow a liaison in some of that effort, right? Yeah. Now you factor in the laptop and the prostitution and all that stuff and all the weird photos and crap that were on there. You got, oh, another, man. You got another whole ball of wax there, but part of that also includes China, okay? So Hunter Biden and the Biden family have some in, interesting things to face down the road if any of that information from the other side actually comes to light. And I think that's why Biden, because the Europeans don't play as fast and loose with people's reputations as we do in the United States, right? Yeah, yeah. So they're not willing to play that card until they're, that's their Trump card, no, no pun intended. That's their Trump card, and, and, and unless Biden acts against their interest in some way, shape, or form, they're going to hold on to that information because they stand nothing to gain by releasing it now. Yeah, that's true. That's true. He's compromised, man. This we're this is well. He's incompetent. The people around him are compromised. Yeah, yeah. Right. I I don't I don't believe he's making any calls at this point, just because he's so belligerent. He's so 
bellicose in the way that he approaches everything. He needs the teleprompter and he can barely survive without it. And it's one of those things where you can see the cognitive decline in a, you ask him a question, he has to pause and think. And, you know, he believes in none of what he says. And again, we saw that under Obama, right? Obama yeah. had to have the teleprompter. He couldn't answer any questions on his own. If they were, they were cut and paste answers. So Biden is even worse with that. And that means that he's not the one that's actually doing his speeches because somebody else is playing puppeteer while he dances to the marionette strings. Well, I have a different theory about Obama and the teleprompter because Obama, whenever he got off prompter, his intercommy would just show. You know, <laughs> True. it was just yeah because he, you know, on the prompter and everything, you know, his words, his speech, and um, his vocabulary was very moderate. Well, he, he was well rehearsed, right? He was. He was well rehearsed, and that was what made him so appealing to people. As they thought, "Oh, wow, he's got all this stuff going for him, and he's got all of his stuff together." Blah blah blah. Mm -hmm. And you take him off of that, and the only thing he resorts to is Marxism because that was all he is trained up under. Yeah, that's true. That is very right? true. Biden is just another scumbag of the same cloth, just without the conviction. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. And then he's implementing all of Obama's Marxist policies. Look at the Green New Deal. Right. Um, look at. Well, and, and that's championed by the people like AOC and everything else, the people that are out there and just overly loud without any common sense. And they have no real solutions. They have no methodology or a if, if you pay them the money they're asking, what are they going to do with it? Right. Mm -hmm, I, mm -hmm. I want to see an actual solution that involves actual changes to the way we do technology, the way mm -hmm. we manage environmental um, practices, mm -hmm. um, you know, and uh, I'm all for penalizing people who put toxic waste into wastewater streams, right? Yeah, they, they, sh they should be facing not just fines, they should be facing jail time. And in some cases, even the death penalty, right? Reasonable. When you put when you put toxic waste into wastewater streams, you affect every single bit of the population to include the wildlife habitat in that area. You're so killing you're committing, people. You're committing mass murder, right? Yeah, you are killing people and the ecosystem. Along with That's them. right. So, so conservatives need to actually grab a hold of their cojones and step up and say, you know what? We're done letting the coward left and their little money-grabbing schemes control this narrative. We actually need to step up and say, fighting for conservative... Um, for conservation rights, for the things that we need to do to make sure our country and our wildlife and every human being in this planet is, is preserved, is our priority, right? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And if you do that, you can shut down the majority of the Green New Deal just because of the simple fact they have no solutions that actually implement those kind of restrictions and punishments, right? Um, yep. That, that, that all they ask for is research money to keep doing more things so they can pay out their college buddy cronies, give them more grant dollars, and they can continue to play scientists and develop things that don't ever actually have any validity in reality. Yeah. I'm always for the conversation. I always think that conservatives, they need to like engage, like really engage and get ahead of some of this stuff because when you just become, and I, and it, and it, and it became cliche-ish, you know, if you become the party of no, you know, and just no, and you don't really engage in the conversation, um, you know, then the voters, they won't take you serious. Correct. Well, and, and if you only stump for feel good messages and rhetoric without solutions, you're yep. still just doing the same song and dance every election cycle. You have no plans. Right. So the Green New Deal hasn't changed since 2008. Right. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, They've mm -hmm. added more bills to it. 
they've added more dollar figures to it, but they haven't changed what they want to do. And the yeah. goal is to bring in more money to the government without actually changing environmental processes and procedures. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. I still can't believe they managed to um, pass a bill where they're going to phase out gas cars. I mean, that's just... <laughs> yeah. That's even, just, even though, again, my, my bottom line on electric vehicles, I'll buy one when it can outpace a, a fossil-powered vehicle. Right. Exactly. My, my current car gets more than 500 miles to the tank when I'm running on the highway straight. OK, wow. show me show me an electric car that gets me 500 miles. I'll sign up for it. Right. Yeah. And the ability to recharge at periodic distances so that I'm not stuck somewhere without, you know, without any recourse. Right. Mm -hmm. So if charging stations are not as plentiful as gas stations, electric cars are a dumb idea. If yeah. they don't outperform fossil fuel vehicles, they're a dumb idea. They're great for the average commuter that doesn't do much of anything, can charge at their home every night. But they don't go anywhere. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Right. And for truckers who haul all of our supplies, electric yeah. makes no sense. Okay, It makes absolutely no sense. Right. So, I mean, for, you, you got to understand the, the market, understand the demand and the fact that we are relying on so much of transportation in the world to get all of our goods and services and supplies and people from place to place. You cannot put the onus on electric vehicles that do not perform to the same level and standard as the current fossil fuel vehicles. Not even just like vehicles, just like when you look at other things, you know, we got airplanes and boats and um, even like in, in the industrial machinery, a lot of them are run by, you know, fossil fuels. Things like that, you know, electricity just don't produce enough power. And then the electricity that you get, it takes fossil fuels to make that electricity. Correct. And that's what yeah, a I lot mean, of people don't yeah, understand. It, it, that's correct. If you, if you look at most houses, they're on coal-powered uh, fossil fuel plants, right? That's right. Most, most houses in the United States are, are, are powered by hydroelectric coal power. That's right. That's right. <laughs> It doesn't come from nowhere, right? Yeah, it's not renewable. So, that's right. Ele electric has to be generated somehow, and the windmill farms aren't going to get it done, right? There, there's nothing that out there that they're proposing that actually creates the kind of electricity that's needed, especially Elon Musk even said it with the Tesla stuff. You need 120 uh, amps at your house service per house in order just to fuel the Tesla vehicle, right? Yep. 120 amp service. Most houses are running on between 80 and 110 right now. So you yeah. got to plus up everyone's electrical grid. What's your what's your electric bill now? That's going to increase, and then you got to provide that amount of electricity for every house in order to account for all those vehicles in service at one time. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And then factor in EMPs. Right. In the next fifteen to twenty years, we're going to have EMPs that might be portable. Right. Domestic terrorism from an EMP standpoint, you get everybody on electric cars, then you simply snap the grid in half. How long will it take to recover from that? Oh man, decades, <laughs> right? <laughs> so, so what they're what they're aiming for is not only idealistic, but it's misguided in every single platform. There is no value to what they're doing, and their only goal is to generate more money for their government grants and their cronies, so they can continue to build this stockpile of resources without actually doing anything to solve for the problems. See, man, that you is the. You got to do a book on this stuff, John. <laughs> I don't want to do a book on that. It's so boring to me, right? I, like for me, how do people not see this coming, right? Mm -hmm. So my, my, my next book is going to be on uh, the uh, motivational behavior psychology, right? And I'm dealing with everything from the tribalism, uh, the psychology of tribalism to what motivates human behavior and how that interacts with our levels of success and how we adjust and adapt to life as it changes, Right. So I'm focused on the human element in the next one as part of the common sense deal. 
But, you know, for me, common sense for these other government policies, we've been debating this for years and nobody is saying, hey, look, let's stop talking about this because until you provide a better solution, there's no point in having the conversation. So you got to get the spineless rhinos and Republicans that don't have any smarts or courage out of out of their office and get somebody into this better. I'd say I'd run, but everybody would hate me. So (laughs) same here. I said I'd run, but there's somebody would kill me. This is the cure.